What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you this morning, Allison? I'm fine. How are you, Tim, this morning? (laughs) (laughs) One of the rare morning recordings we're doing. Well, tonight, Allison? Yes. Brother Richard is back. We're going to talk all about angels. Everything you ever wanted to know about angels, but were afraid to ask. I'm afraid to ask why I've always been calling them cherubim when really they're cherubim. (laughs) (laughs) There was a little... um, little issue with the recording, a little sound issue. Mm-hmm. There's some clicking in it. We couldn't find it. We recorded it on Skype, which usually has the best sound quality of anything we use better than Zoom or anything else. And for some reason, I just couldn't find where this clicking was coming from. I did my best to treat it. Soraya helped me. He ran it through a filter. He got it better than I had it. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Soraya. It's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. I don't ask for many Christmas presents. <laughs> Don't leave a mean comment about the sound quality. (laughs) That's all I'm asking. I know the clicking's there. Well, now you've just alerted people to it. I might not have noticed it otherwise. That could be my Christmas present from everyone. Just say nice things on this episode. (laughs) Just don't mention the clicking. Here's the thing. When Brother Richard's on the show, I don't honestly think about other things because he's so engaging. So, like, to me, it's not even going to be remotely an issue. So I think you're right. Before we get to Brother Richard, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. Thank you for everything you do. We could not do Strange Familiars without you. If you like what we do, and you'd like to help us continue to make Strange Familiars and get extra content besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Our patrons get two exclusive episodes of Strange Familiars every month. Plus, they get commercial-free versions of the regular show every week. So if you don't like those commercials... Patreon's a great way to support us and get commercial-free content besides. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. 
All right, let's go ahead and get to my talk on angels with Brother Richard. Welcome back to Strange Familiars, Brother Richard. It's great to be back. It's always good to chat to you. How are you doing this Advent season? Uh, Doing well. We're busy. I've just spent an evening um, packing Christmas cards for our parishioners with a little committee of people. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all of the the busyness of the season, but it's a good busyness. I must say it's my favorite time of the church's year. I have to agree. It's just, I don't know, it's just something about Advent and Christmas and it's just wonderful. I've, I've always loved it. Yeah, I think it, it's something to do with the world's being closer. It's something to do with, I think, childhood and, and inviting us into into that kind of child's way of being or child's way of wonder. No, no matter what the Christmases were that we had in the past, I think even as adults, we can recapture that in some way. Yeah, it, there's something about Christmas, I think, that even the most cynical, it seems to open their eyes just a little wider to the wonder around them. How is your book doing? <laughs> You're very kind. As far as I know, it's, do, it's doing well. I, I haven't received much feedback uh, other than it, apparently it's it's a good Christmas seller. It's still on the bestseller list around Ireland and in the various bookshops. It, unfortunately, I was taken around by the publishers to the various bookshops to sign a lot of, of stock. And the only problem with that has been that now every time I go into a bookshop, people know who I am. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I, I've noticed book clerks uh, being very curious as to what I'm looking at and what books I'm buying and all of that kind of stuff. So it's been interesting. I don't think I've shocked them too much, but it's it's been interesting. Yeah. Still points. And it's about, I think it's soon published. Well, it's been available as an ebook and audiobook in the States, but I think it's soon published in. Uh, yeah, I think it's early January around 10th, 11th of January. I think it's supposed to be out there. So yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it does over there. But yeah, as I say, it's, it's doing okay here, and lots of people uh, seem to be happy with it. So, you know, you put it out there, and it's it's good that it's there. Have you caught the uh, book publishing bug? Is there is there more in the future? <laughs> well, the publisher has. They've invited me to, to bring out a second one, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where that goes, you know, slowly with these things. And it, it's possible to get kind of whipped up and caught up in it all, but um, it's not really what we're in it for. In fact, right up until recently, if I was publishing a book as a Capuchin Friar, it would simply have just said, by a Capuchin Friar. My name wouldn't have been on it at all. And the more publicity I get caught up in, the more I think that was a very wise way of, of, of publishing years ago. But we'll see. There, there are a few other bits and pieces. And there, there's, a, there's a big, deep, heavy theological one I've been working on for years, which is around the contemplative tradition. But I don't think that would be um, grist to the mill of the kind of more popular publisher. We'll see. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what the future brings. Yeah. And tonight we're going to talk about angels, which we've touched on a little bit in our talks before. Sure. And I know this is something of great interest to people across the strange familiar sphere, whether they be occultists or Christians or yeah. uh, just lay yeah. people. We get a lot of questions about angels, so I'm excited to kind of get the big overview going here. Yeah, me too. I hope to do them proud, seeing as they're always around, you know. So I've, I've already asked for a little help along the way. So hopefully they'll prompt the memory when needed. So I guess when we start, we should just, what are angels? Okay, well, obviously, I'm speaking from our perspective, which mm-hmm. is a kind of Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, basic approach with huge similarities and overlap with the Jewish tradition as well. Obviously, we find 
angelic spirits or their equivalent pretty much in every religious tradition, which is the idea of a being of pure spirit who is somewhere an intermediary uh, level between uh, a divinity, a deity and, and humanity. After that, we get into specific angelology as such, and it is, it's a field of theology all by itself, angelology. So um, just as I think a lot of the more occultically aware or strangely familiar people would be aware of things like demonology, there, there is the, the opposite, which is angelology. And that's, that's a whole field of theological inquiry by itself. But if we start with just the basic thing, I think the first thing is an angel is, is not a what, it's an action. Um, so the word angel comes from Greek angelos, which basically just means messenger. So we're reminded again and again by those people we call the fathers and mothers of the church, the kind of the, the great theologians and saints that angel doesn't define a nature, it defines a job. The correct name for them as the being that they are is simply spirit. They are a being of pure spirit, pure consciousness. They are personal in the sense that they are individuals and have personalities. They are sanctified and they went through their own experience of, of judgment. We can talk about fallen angels and things like that in a moment. And then they are defined basically by, by the work that they do, the kind of ministering angels, as, as we speak of, the ones that, that care for every level of uh, creation and the ones that have particular divine appointments, I suppose. In that sense, every angel is a unique individual and every angel has a, has a unique name, but we know the names of very, very few of them. For an angel to reveal its name is, is a huge thing, a very extraordinary thing. We can talk about the whole customs around naming angels as well later. I suppose as a pure spirit, they have free will. Uh, they, are, they have um, chosen to follow the divine will. And they were put to the test at one point, we believe, before humanity was created. But certainly in the very early stages of creation, there came a moment when it was put to the angels, at least in the Christian tradition, we believe it was put to the angels, the idea of the incarnation, that the divine word, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, would at some point descend into matter and would unify through incarnation with humanity. Um, and the, the understanding is that the vast majority of the angels gave great assent to this, but there were some who, because of pride, because of the, the sin of pride, would felt that it was beneath them to worship matter. Uh, and so as a result, they fell. This is an irrevocable fall because angels operate with full knowledge. So if you think about yourself changing your mind, you, you change your mind because you receive new information. You know, new information comes in and therefore you think about the decision you made. and You think, well, maybe that was a wrong decision. And so you change your mind. This is the gift of being a human being who lives in time as opposed to in eternity. But an angel as a spirit of knowledge, once it gazes upon anything, it apprehends it completely within the divine light. And so it's hard for us as human beings to imagine that. But it is the understanding of total apprehension and total penetration of anything that the angel brings its consciousness to, to the fullness of its own being, the fullness of the level of its own being. So we as human beings learn bit by bit in time, knowledge complements knowledge, we discover errors, we correct errors, and slowly we grow into the fullness of truth. But it's only when we enter into eternity that we can have the fullness of the apprehension of truth, because we are outside of time at that point. Because the angels understood everything in that moment, when they made that decision, it was a once and for all decision. Now, there's huge argument amongst the, um, the mystics of the church and the fathers and mothers 
as to whether or not the angels that fell, that became the demons, whether or not they will actually be redeemed at the end of all time. We can talk about that again, but there is, I suppose, an orthodox position which says, no, they have irrevocably turned away from God and that's it. But there are those who believe that within the ineffability of divine providence, eventually there will come some kind of healing or some kind of renewal whereby even the, the demons will be redeemed. There's a beautiful story in the Athenite tradition. These are the, the monks of Mount Athos, the, the, the hermits of Athos, of a, a monk who was um, a wonderful hermit and was considered a great saint. And uh, a demon, a very powerful demon, was sent to torment him, to try and distract him from his prayer. But he was so focused on his prayer that what he did was to, instead of exercising the demon or casting him out, he, he bound the demon in the name of Jesus to stay with him, to listen to his prayers, oh. um, which was a tremendous torture to the demon who asked to go. So the monk said, well, I'll let you go. There's no problem. I'll let you go as long as you first sing to me the song that you sang when you were an angel. And the demon begged, begged and begged for many months, days, months, years, we're told within the story to be relieved of this, that it didn't want to recount the song of the angel. Because, again, to sing the song means to return to the nature of, to become, the, to become once again an angelic being. And so the monk consistently said, you can go as soon as you sing that song. And the story is that eventually, in order to be let go, the demon began to sing the song of the angel. And as it began to sing, it slowly returned to angelic form from the demonic. And at the moment that it became a beautiful angel, it was at that moment that the monk died and the two of them entered heaven together. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's a parable, it's a folktale, it's a story of Athos, um, but there's a lot in that, which I think even if we just take it to human beings, it's about understanding our, our true nature and that evil is when we step away from our true nature. So if you can teach people to come back to remember who they really are, then that gives a blessing as we return to, to original nature, you know? Sure. As I say, the orthodox position is once a demon, always a demon. Once an angel, always an angel. Once they've made that decision, I hope, according to the, the more mystical tradition, that there might be more freedom in that. But who knows? Who knows? So I suppose continuing on within the angelic tradition, then we see that the angels, in terms of their ministering to creation, being divided uh, essentially into, into three, what we call the three spheres of the angels. And this was particularly described by a wonderful work that's called On the Celestial Hierarchy by an author who rejoices in the name of Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Uh, <laughs> not one to try without your, your false teeth in, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, the reason he's, he's Pseudo-Dionysius is because it was originally an anonymous monastic text. And as often happened in the early Middle Ages, writings were grouped together and, and sort of um, famous names were appointed to these writings. I'm finding this with the flowered path, with the oh, research yeah. I'm doing. It's yeah, yeah, L lots of this. Yeah, yeah. Not sure how many versions of the Golden Legend there are, but there's quite a few. <laughs> too many, too yeah. many. One, one day I'll tell you about my favorite saint in the, in the Golden Legend who rejoices in the name of Saint James the Dismembered. But it's worth, I suppose, understanding that what they were doing and, and the, was not at least in the medieval mindset, it wasn't seen as, as sort of lying or deceiving. It was sort of saying that, th that the individual was known for their work and for their great philosophy. So therefore, appointing a work to them was an act of humility by the author, kind of the author remaining anonymous, but in some way saying it belongs to the school of this individual. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's sort of where this idea comes from of pseudo-epigraphia. 
it's not the same as as kind of somebody saying, well, if I put a, a famous name on it, people will think it's them and, and I'll be more popular, you know? Right, yeah. Again, sometimes we've got to go to the, the original mindset and, and some societies, the mindset can be very different from the way the way we look at things now. So Pseudo-Dionysius basically summed up the first 500 years or so of angiology and forever defined uh, within the Christian tradition the kind of orders, the orders of the angels. So he speaks of three spheres, the spheres of creation, and this goes back to the idea of um, the whole of the universe being a number of spheres within spheres, goes back to Platonic thought, really, in this idea. And so in a kind of a Neoplatonic way, he presents the highest sphere, the Empyrean sphere, as containing the highest of the three choirs of angels. So the highest of them are the seraphim. These are the angels whose nature is pure fire and who have absolute sight of the divinity uh, in as full a sense that any created being can have. And they're often depicted in icons uh, with six wings. And very, very, very seldom do they enter the earthly sphere at all. Usually only communication with saintly figures or people who have attained to great spiritual unity. So you have in the Old Testament, for example, the seraph that appears to the prophet Isaiah and purifies the prophet. You have the seraphs then who appear to St. Teresa of Avila um, the, during the famous transverberation marked by the piercing of her soul by divine love. Uh, a seraph appears to St. Francis and St. Francis is often known as the seraphic saint because this was his prayer was that he would burn with the love of the seraphim. And uh, it was through a, an apparition of a seraph that he received the stigmata. And then Padre Pio also uh, received a vision of a seraph, which again uh, was, was part of the transverberation. Transverberation is, is an event that takes place in the highest of the mystics, whereby their soul is utterly pierced by the divine word. And so they, while still living on earth, attain to the highest level of unity with the divine that is possible as a human being. Is that the instance where he talked about like literally feeling wounded from it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Normally, it's, there's a kind of a redemptive aspect to it as well, where the saint is invited to suffer for love. And so um, separate to actually receiving the stigmata, the visible wounds, uh, the transverberation, which he always said was a spiritual wound, but which was the most painful wound of all. It took place during an ecstasy where a seraph appeared and asked him, would he be willing to bear this for Christ? And he said yes. And then Christ appeared and pierced him through with a lance uh, directly through the heart center. So it basically renders the human heart, the heart of the saint, as being a new conduit through which divine grace can flow into the world. And it's sort of a, at the highest level, their will becomes one with the divine will. So the seraphs very seldom descend into the other spheres, only for extraordinarily uh, important events. As the seraphs are defined by love and love as fire, the next choir are the cherubim, uh, or cherubim, you'll sometimes hear them said, but it's, it's cherubim. And uh, the cherubs are the angels of pure intellect, uh, pure knowledge. And they appear very often with four wings. In the iconographic tradition, the seraphs are painted red and the cherubs are painted blue or purple. They're the colors that are associated with them, red for fire and the cherubs blue for water and the sky. So they have four wings and very often are depicted with four faces as well. Um, the face of a lion, an ox, a human, and, and an animal. There was a very famous episode of the X-Files, of all things, where Scully and Mulder were investigating um, a possession, I think, within a Jewish community, an Orthodox Jewish community. And 
I think at the end, Scully meets one of the Caribs and they have this extraordinary effect of the four faces appearing within the face of the human being who's the, the vessel of the angel at the time. It's, it's quite an interesting and lesser known episode, but one that was very interesting for actually bringing the full lore of the Caribbean to bear. The Caribs are also the ones that, that descend to engage, particularly when the people of God are threatened. Um, and so it was believed that it was a Carib that was the uh, pillar of fire and pillar of smoke that went ahead of the people of Israel in the desert. It was also a Carib that defended the people against various kind of wars and problems and plagues and, and persecutions. So in that sense, they are uh, more active in the lower spheres, but again, behold the face of God and are very often depicted as the angels with the flaming swords. It was the cherubim that seal off paradise forever uh-huh. from humanity. And for those of you out there who like good literature and good fantasy literature, in the, the famous uh, book, now TV adapt- adaptation of, of Good Omens, the, the apocalypse as written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, of all people, <laughs> Aziraphale, the angel of the, um, the book, is a cherub who has, uh, by accident, lost his flaming sword uh, along the way. So there you are. The third choir within the first sphere are the thrones. These are also known as the onophim or the orophim. And these are the angels who appear as wheels or spheres or orbs. Uh, very often with multiple eyes. They, they are the ones who um, appear least often in human form. Uh, the wheels within wheels of, of Ezekiel uh, and the ones who sit below the throne of God, they're known as the thrones because they are also the ones who, who draw people into divine assembly and guard the ecclesia, the church, when it gathers together in prayer and sacramental life. These are the ones that very often when you see memes of uh, biblically accurate depictions of yes. angels and yeah. they look absolutely horrifying and terrifying and, and you hear them say do not be afraid these are the ones of whom you would be very afraid if you were to encounter them it's said that to see any of the high level angels seraphim cherubim or thrones uh, as they actually are people would die and as a result they usually only show themselves in very hidden ways or kind of um through vessels or through instruments of others. You find that in the Bible multiple times where angels appear. The first thing they say is, don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is telling you, don't be afraid, it usually means, you know, in that moment, the other person is is absolutely terrified. Yeah, yeah. And should be. Because again, um, these are, the seraphim cherubim thrones are often mistaken for God. Uh, And so you'll often have that thing of someone throwing themselves on the ground and and worshipping or or begging God's forgiveness. And the angel sort of has to lift them up and say, no, 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 I'm only a servant like you. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm here to give you a message. We see that in the revelation of John particularly. So let's move to the second sphere. If that's okay, if that's not complicated enough, we move to the second sphere. So we're moving down away from the divine and into the various levels of creation itself. The second sphere are basically the governors of creation, of all of the levels of created being, both visible and invisible. And so we begin with the the choir known as the dominions or dominations. These uh, order the work of the angelic world. So they're basically the overseers of the lower choirs of angels who work in the field of creation itself. Hence, they're known as the dominions or dominations, or sometimes the lords or princes. One of the difficulties with the word dominion or domination or dominus for lordship is we have a very, very um, new understanding of that, which is kind of a greater that's imposing their will upon a lesser. And that's not the biblical understanding of dominion. The dominus, the lord, was above all else the guardian and protector of those under them. 
and as a result was seen as the servant of those. So when God says to humankind, have dominion over the earth, what he's actually saying in that moment is you are now the servant of created being. Mm-hmm. You are to lift created being up. Important distinction. Oh, it's, it's massive. It's massive yeah, because yeah. it changes the whole understanding of who we are and what we are. There's a reason that Adam, Adamah, uh, as, as he was in Hebrew, like the, the name translates as gardener, not a person who is to subjugate um, the rest of creation. In fact, we're meant to be the conscious part of creation, raising it, raising it up to meet the angelic world. So they're the dominions that they look after all of the various uh, sort of other choirs of angels and kind of order them and, and pass down the information. A higher angel can illuminate a lower angel. So we'll talk about this in a moment in terms of light and how light works within the angelic hierarchy. But you could, you could for example, meet a seraph, but through your own guardian angel. So the light of the seraph can be mediated through a lower angel for you to meet it at a level that's appropriate to your level of being. And that becomes very important as, we, as we'll see going further on. Okay. The next choir then are the virtues. And these are the angels of the elements, the angels of um, created matter. Uh, basically the angels of uh, one, one more recent angelology scholar put it this way. These are the angels of the periodic table <laughs> in the sense that every element that exists that comes from the divine has an angel appointed to it. My goodness, that sounds like animism. Well, there we go. Yeah. Um, the only difference being that it's not, I suppose, the God in and of itself, right, but right. the angel who governs, who points towards the divine origin of it. Right. Um, in that sense, you can address the angelic world through the created world. So you have, you know, a beautiful bunny rabbit there with you, I'm sure. And uh, there is an angel in charge of, of the lagomorphs, in charge of the rabbits. And one of the, the, the ways in which we can invite angelic presence is to recognize that every being that we share our life with or share creation with has an angel that is appointed to guard that particular kind and to ensure that it's, it's protected. So this is where things like, as we'll talk about later in some of the questions, things like apologizing to beings that we have to hunt or that we have to remove or when we change landscape or things like that so that angelic order is preserved becomes very important. Ah. The virtues are also the angels of miracles. Um, because within the Christian tradition, a, a miracle is not something unnatural. It simply is obeying a law of nature that we do not yet fully understand. So in that sense, the angels of nature are the ones who intercede or become the, the, um, the instruments by which the divine will works miracles in the world. And uh, the virtues have a very particular job. These are the first ones that turn outwards now towards humanity, and they are to help us with science, with philosophy, with wisdom, with coming to understand the created world and with coming into better relationship with it. So these are the, the angels that invite us into that, uh, that particular way of being. The last choir of the second sphere are the powers. These are also sometimes known as princedoms as well. And they have a specific role, which is to defend against evil or the corruption of creation itself. And so when we exert our ego or our ill will or our um, whatever you want to call it, um, our, our kind of way of selfishly using creation up. It is the powers who come to, to remonstrate with us and uh, to cause natural disasters or things like that to try and call us back to proper balance or proper ways of being. They are also the ones who defend particularly against spiritual evil as well. So when we call on the angels to protect us, it is the powers who answer in that way. Then we have the third and final sphere of the angels. 
This is the, the sphere that is nearest to us on Earth and has most to do with humanity. So that we come to the, the highest of the, the third sphere, who are the principalities, also sometimes known as princes as well, or the rulers. These particularly are over peoples, nations, countries, groups, cultures. And these were the angels whose job it was to guide all of humanity except the chosen people. So while the Jews continued to have from the very outset the revelation of the divine completely and clearly to them, to the principalities was granted what was often known by the early fathers and mothers as the religion of the world, by which they meant all pagan faiths, all pagan religions. So the principalities were to kind of encourage human beings to live according to the natural law while they waited for the coming of the Messiah. And these were very often, um, because humanity does this, these are the angels who are very often uh, mistaken as the pagan gods and goddesses. And so before the revelation of Christ, this was allowed as such within the dispensation, because again, they couldn't reveal themselves completely or perfectly to human beings. And it was through the imagination of humanity that they spoke particularly. These would be, um, again, the imagination as a spiritual faculty of communication is extremely important here. So you have, for example, in the book of Daniel, when Israel is at war with Persia, or is being persecuted with per by Persia, uh, you have this moment where the, uh, Daniel sees the angel of Israel speaking to the prince of Persia, meaning the angel of Persia. And he goes to assist the angel of Persia in their struggle with another, another country. So again, it's seeing writ large within the angelic sphere that whatever happens in the human sphere is mirrored there. And whatever happens in the angelic sphere is mirrored down again into the lower sphere. So as above, so below, that kind of ancient principle of philosophy happens here as well. Mm -hmm. Then the next are the archangels. Now, these are the lower archangels. We'll speak about the seven great archangels in a moment. But the, the archangels basically are uh, the ones who have very strong authority over the human world and are usually sent with particular messages. They have very clear jobs and they're the ones that will kind of um, turn up to defend particular places, sacred places and sacred people particularly. And then we have the angels themselves, an infinite number of the lowest of the choirs. They are the ones nearest to us. They range from the angels who look after individual beings, individual human beings like the guardian angels, right the way through to um, the angels who look after everything from flowers to plants to vegetative life to animal life to all of those kind of ideas. And so they are considered to be the most numerous and the most present and near to us. I think it was Padre Pio who said that if we could actually see the angelic world, we would be amazed at the numbers of angels that we pass through and around each day. And C.S. Lewis has that wonderful thing of because that which is nearer to God is more real, the angels experience us as being ghost-like passing through them rather than the other way around. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he speaks of the, especially the angels of the planets as being these extraordinarily gigantic forms uh, through which the planets pass as atoms pass through us, you know. And it's probably, in fact, from a platonic point of view, it's probably far more. Uh, authentic and accurate to think of that way. As human beings, we have that little bit of egocentrism where we tend to think of ourselves as being the most real and the most important, mm. when in actual fact we are um, the ones who are the mix and gather of all the elements together. And the angelic world uh, tends to, to be more real the nearer we get to the divine.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's the ordering of the angels I've given. Now, I mentioned the seven holy archangels. So the holy archangels do not belong to the choir of archangels. This is another term for them. These are known as the seven spirits who stand before the throne of God at all times. These are the seven highest angels that there are. Three, or depending on your use of scripture, four of them have names that are scripturally given. So we have Michael, who is the highest of all of the angels, Michael the archangel. He is Michael, which is the, um, the one who is nearest or the one who is like God and the one who is uh, given the job particularly of defending the people of Israel, uh, defending the Pope within the church. He's seen as the one who is the guardian of that particular office. He is the angel of the Eucharist who protects the, the, the Eucharist in a particular way. And he is the one who at the end of time will finally bind the enemies of God forever. He is the one who made war in heaven and cast out the angels who, who wouldn't bow down uh, before the plan, the divine plan. At our church, we end every Mass with hmm. the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. Yeah, it's one of the most beautiful and powerful, and it's one of the very few prayers that actually has the rank of a minor exorcism. And so merely to say that prayer, to offer it, which any baptized person is able to do, it has the authority of the church's exorcism behind it as well. It's a very, very powerful prayer to pray. We often recommend it to people who think that there might be manifestations in their houses or problems or difficulties, just to pray it quietly and to see, does that make any difference? Which will often allow you to see whether, well, what are we dealing with here, you know? Mm -hmm. The second archangel then is Gabriel, um, Gabriel. Gabriel means the strength of God or the action of God in the world, the definitive action of God in the world. So Gabriel is sent as the great messenger and obviously most well known for being the one who brings the message of the incarnation to Mary in the Annunciation. And so Gabriel is considered a very, very important angel because he is the ambassador of the entire angelic world to the human and was also seen as Mary's guardian angel. And this is why he was given the job of bringing the message to Mary as well. The angel of purity, by that I don't just mean kind of virginal purity, but pure intention particularly. And an angel of tremendous power, insight, intellect, knowledge, wisdom. Gabriel, we go to for, for wisdom and illumination of divine mysteries particularly. The third then is Raphael or Raphael. Raphael is the angel of healing, patron of young people, of those who are seeking uh, wisdom or seeking knowledge, the angel of healers, and an angel who regularly appears on the road uh, is one of the, these angels who appears to guide people, to protect people, 
of the highest archangels, the one most likely to be met in the world and one who draws very near to people who seek uh, his, his care, known as the angel of compassion as well. After that, we come to um, some interesting names because these are names that tradition rather than scripture hands down. And so the next one that most people would be aware of is Uriel or Uriel. Uriel appears in the Book of Enoch, which is a non-canonical book of scriptures. I think we talked a lot about the Book of Enoch when we talked about Nephilim and giants mm-hmm. and all of that kind of, kind of stuff before. Yeah. But Uriel is the light of God. Uh, so again, the illumination of conscience, mind, and, and understanding. Um, and this is where the angels as light becomes extremely important. So within the Neoplatonic tradition within Christianity, there is the understanding that the nearest we can imagine the divine essence is as pure light. And so all that that exists, exists within that light. So even the earthly light by which we see, we see through the grace of the interior divine light that illuminates all things, but is so bright that if we look towards it, we are blinded. And so we perceive it as darkness. This is the understanding of the mystic who gets so close to God that they begin to actually experience God as as void or darkness rather than illumination. So we speak of it as, uh, I suppose, what would you say, a kind of a void, but without absence. This idea of being in in light that is so bright, my senses can't take it. And so I'm reduced to darkness Mm. and in a space so big that I can't feel the walls, the floor, the ceiling. So it feels like I'm just in a space beyond self, but at the same time with a personal aspect to it. So the angels come as lesser light within that light. And so within that beam of divine light that's holding you in being or me in being or anything else in being, there are angels who descend uh, and ascend along that beam of light to moderate it and to mediate it so that we can actually receive it. And Uriel is the angel who is over the sphere of light particularly. After that, we go into tradition. Um, There are various other names given for the other archangels. Normally within the Catholic tradition, we just speak of Michael Gabriel Raphael and sometimes Uriel. Um, Within the Orthodox tradition, they would include the others who who are traditional names given, and that would be Kamael, who is the angel of courage and strength and comes particularly to strengthen us in spiritual, I suppose, spiritual difficulty. Japhael, who is the angel of beauty, of the arts, and of discernment or judgment, and particularly of the feminine aspect of spirituality. That's Japhael. And then Zadkiel, who is the angel of righteousness and mercy. Um, and who brings the, the gift of, of mercy is, is sort of the helper to be turned to when no help can be found anywhere else. Within the Celtic Christian tradition, each of the angels was appointed a particular day of the week, seven days of the week, seven holy archangels. So you can see how they, how they jumped to it. Mm-hmm. And then within the medieval tradition, each of the seven angels was given one of the seven great planetary powers within the astrology of the time. Uh, so each of the seven great planetary spheres had a holy archangel ruling it or guiding it or guarding it. There were often colors associated with the particular angels as well, and also minerals and crystals that were associated with the particular angels. Sometimes people, particularly Catholics, can kind of feel, oh my goodness, this all sounds very new age, you know. But actually it's very old age, and and it goes right the way back to the understanding that creation is meaningful in and of itself. So again, as we look at the elements, as we look at the various created things, it should be possible, it is believed, that by gazing upon or discerning spiritually anything that is created to mount through grace to the creator, 
And so everything that exists is in some way being held in existence, not just by the divine, but also by the angelic powers at the behest of the divine. Um, so, for example, somebody like St. Hildegard of Bingen, one of the great healers and a doctor of the church herself, wrote a fantastic treatise on the powers and curative properties of minerals and crystals. And that's totally orthodox within the understanding of the church. Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure both spoke about astrology. But the differentiation they made was that astrology to predict the future was allowed within the pagan dispensation. But within once the Christian revelation had come, astrology may be used as guidance with regard to the personality and the present moment, which should not be looked at from a divinatory point of view, seeking the future, because the future is now to be surrendered into the hands of the divine completely. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it, and it's a very important distinction as well. And it also means that sometimes we can find within the Christian tradition, people are sort of terrified of all of these things as though they are wrong in and of themselves. But we'll often find within the Christian tradition, there is teaching and a mediated way of dealing with these things, you know? Yeah. So there, there are the seven holy archangels. There are the spheres. There are two other and angels that, that sort of receive names along the way. Um, one is that it's a very Greek sounding name, but it's the Metatron. Um, and you may have come across that as well. The Metatron is very often mentioned within both Christian and Jewish Kabbalah mm-hmm. and uh, is seen as the divine voice. In other words, that God is so far beyond creation, an angel has to be used to announce the divine word. In the book of Enoch, Enoch the prophet is taken up into heaven and there assumes an angelic identity. As we mentioned before, angel is a a job rather than a a being, a form of being. And so uh, Enoch becomes the Metatron in that sense, the divine voice announcing the will of God into the world. In the Christian tradition, John the Baptist is very often seen as the angel of the covenant because he is the one who comes to announce both the ending of the Old Dispensation, the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New by announcing the coming of the Messiah. And so because his job is to announce, in iconography, he is often shown with angels' wings. Oh. And that's why in, in, the, in the icon tradition, John the Baptist, very often um, in the, the, the icon, because an icon is, is, an, is an eternal moment pictured in time, you will see him standing holding his cross, you know, in his uh, camel hair coat and his leather belt around his waist, but also holding a plate that has his head uh, on it Mm -hmm. and two angel wings hovering in background behind him. So this is the way in which the kind of angelic names appear. There's been a lot, I suppose, lately, and I know you even mentioned it to me in conversation around this whole thing of asking for your guardian angel's name and, you know, seeking the name. And there, again, like all things, (laughs) when you have a tradition that's you know, taking it back to our Jewish origins, kind of four, 5,000 years old, there's been a lot of discussion around it. I suppose the, the basic Orthodox tradition is that you don't seek an angel's name. Because again, within the understanding of the spiritual tradition, an, a name contains the nature. And so there is considered to be a kind of an unequal relationship by knowing the name of the angel. And so a name should only be given Um, as free gift rather than sought after. However, within Irish folklore, there is the idea that the name that you would like for yourself that you hadn't been christened. So I'm sure we all have names that we go, oh gosh, I wonder what it would have been like to be called by that name. Hmm. And it's purely folklore, but within the folklore, the belief was that's the name you should call your guardian angel. Because the reason you like it so much is because it's actually the angel who's been with you since the beginning. 
And at the very least, it's a nice thing to kind of appoint a name. And many of the saints appointed names to their angels. They kind of christened their angel. But it was always believed that if you do this, you should never give the name of your angel, either the name you address it by, or if you are blessed enough that your angel reveals its name to you, that name should never be given to anybody else. It's a name that should be absolutely protected and kept safe within your own prayer and contemplation. Yeah, I've noticed an almost obsessive uh, interest in the names of these spirits and you know angels. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you go into the grimoire tradition or any of that kind of thing, you'll find thousands and thousands of names of angels and demons and, you know, um, all of their various attributes and all of this kind of stuff. And within the, I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but within the magical tradition, one of the difficulties about all of these things is it's very much about having power over or the power of compulsion, compelling. And the understanding is that the angels are our brothers and sisters in that, well, beyond, I mean, they're beyond gender, but brothers and sisters in the sense of fellow servants, fellow beings, that they are sentient and individual. And just as we would not compel any other human being to our will, or we shouldn't at least, the same is true for the angels, that there is a free association and we will have the help that we need from them when we need it. And so simply addressing one's guardian angel as my guardian angel is enough, unless the angel themselves, the, the themselves chooses to give you a name by which to address them. Uh, the other interesting thing, of course, is uh, angels can appear as anything. So within the dispensation of the divine will, uh, they don't necessarily have to appear simply as angels. They can appear as anything, uh, as other people, uh, as animals, as lights, um, as orbs, as anything they can appear as. Many of the saints had experiences of their angels appearing as uh, physical light, pillars of light particularly, uh, spheres of light. The Church Father Origen says that when we are without our bodies, the most perfect shape is the sphere. And so all spiritual beings assume the, the, the shape of the sphere whenever they are just simply being themselves as opposed to having to, to appear as anything in particular. So that goes back to our our orbs, yeah. yes, yeah, all over the place. And it makes sense. Again, that's the idea of the platonic perfection of geometric shapes, that the sphere is the simplest and is the most perfect and is therefore the nearest to the divine. The second one after that then is the pillar. And very often where an angels appear, they will appear first as a glimmer of light or as a wavering uh, in the air, which eventually becomes a pinprick of light. And then that extends into a pillar of light. If the angel decides to speak to one or is given the, the job of speaking to one, they may speak internally through locution, which is the perception of a physical voice internally without it actually having to go through the air, the vibration of the air or whatever. Or they may speak as a voluble voice directly into, into the ear. As I said, they're beyond gender, so they can appear as masculine or feminine and very often will appear as, as animals and, and particularly as birds. I know... Josh has written beautifully about the whole psychopomp end of things in his Ecology of Souls. But one of the things I think that, that's, that's there strongly is the, the idea that the spiritual powers can either move an animal so that it um, becomes a vessel of theirs for a while, or they can actually appear in the form of the animal itself. And that's where you very often get these, these lovely stories of dogs that lead people home and you know cats that turn up just when they're needed or whatever and yeah. then disappear. St. John Bosco. Uh, one of the, the saints, um, I think he was one of the first saints actually to be photographed. He was around about the 1800s or so, mid-1800s. Uh, he was very famous for having, um, there was so much violent opposition to him and to his work with the poor at the time. He was very, very famous for having a giant black dog 
uh, that would appear beside him when he was walking home at night and would see off various attackers and things like that. He referred to the dog as Grigio, which meant the grey one. And the dog would come in, it was never seen to eat. Um, it would come into the, to the, the, the monastery and would sit down and, and, and be with him. Occasionally, it would prevent him from leaving, and they would usually discover that there was an assassin somewhere along the way who had been picked up, who was on his way to Don Bosco. And it would allow the kids who, who lived in the orphanage, whatever, to kind of hang out of it and play out of it or whatever, and then it would just disappear for months at a time. Whenever he was out walking at night and was kind of feeling nervous and would begin to pray, suddenly the dog would appear beside him and would kind of walk him home. And if he was getting lost, it would show his way home. And I think there was an incident where it was about 20, 20 years or so had gone by and they hadn't seen him. And they were having a conversation one day saying, do you remember that dog that used to turn up? And as they had the conversation, there was a scratching at the door and the dog came in and sat down beside them. They asked Don Bosco, was it actually his guardian angel that had turned up? And he said um, he didn't bother to ask. He was just happy to have the dog with him when he needed to have it. So that was it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And there's all of those kinds of stories about various animals being associated with the angels and, and kind of turning up at, at, at particular times Yeah, along the way. So what about white robes and halos and wings? Well, again, a lot of this is iconography. Mm -hmm. It's very ancient iconography. It goes back, actually, to the genius loci and the fatas and, and, and the fates and all of that kind of stuff of the early um, Greek and Roman tradition. And as anything, I suppose, when, when the Christians coming out of Judaism, in the Jewish tradition, you didn't really depict angels at, at all. You didn't depict anything other than uh, in, in kind of very, very abstract form. The only time in the scripture that we hear of the chosen people being told specifically to make images is of two cherubs, which were the cherubs that were on the, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And again, this indicated that God rested, the presence of God was seen to rest upon the cherubs, again, an indication of celestial hierarchy. So we're told that they were to make two cherubs and the cherubs were winged because we're told the wings of the cherubs faced each other. We're not actually told what they looked like. And so you have everything depicted in uh, depictions of the Ark of the Covenant from angels bowing down to kind of sphinxes to sort of chimeric figures, uh, etc. Uh, and again, <laughs> the, the cherubs particularly, as we know, can appear with all kinds of mixtures of faces and eyes. The multiple eyes, by the way, is a figure of the idea of all seeing or mm -hmm. all vision, all knowing. That's where, where the, the idea of the eyes within, without come from, just like we would speak of the third eye opening or the eye of the mind or the eye of imagination. The angels are specifically over the imaginal realm, particularly within the Christian mystical tradition, especially within the Islamic tradition. And so the imaginal, I know it's so popular within the strange familiars vocabulary, but it's that idea very, very clearly put that when an angel forms something within the imaginal realm, it has both physical agency within the world but at the same time can be dissolved back into thought very, very quickly and very easily. And just as the angels can do this, the demons can also do this within the imaginal realm. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, the, the, the higher angels would have, as I said, like angels over the elements, they would have power to form and mold the element to whatever they specifically need to do in order to fulfill their particular mission at the time. One of the most interesting visions of the guardian angels, I think, mod in, in modern day that took place was actually um, J.R. Tolkien had a vision of his guardian angel. And he writes to his son, Michael, who later became a priest, uh, this is in Tolkien's letters, where he says, while he was at prayer, he saw a beam of light in which 
uh, dust motes were dancing. And he realized that the beam of light was the divine attention and that the motes were all that was created. Um, so they were illuminated and everything that is ex existed within that one beam of, of light. And then he realized that there was a lesser beam of light within the beam of light that connected the moat to the origin. So every moat had its own lesser beam of light that connected it as an extant created thing with the origin of the light itself. And that that intermediary beam looked at the same time, at one and the same time, towards the origin and towards the moat and guided light from the origin to the moat. And so he said that the, the lesser beam is the guardian angel who is the personalized attention of God. I think it's a beautiful way of defining the angels, that they are the personalized attention of the divine love. Yeah. Um, light flowing both ways from us to God through them and from God through them to us. So this is the angels. And I should also say, um, seeing as we're coming up to Christmas, people often ask about the angels who sang over the nativity, you know, the angels who appeared to the shepherds, etc. Yeah. Again, in the Christian mystical tradition, these were the angels who had had to labor on the earth with the nations who did not have divine revelation. And so they had been waiting and longing and praying and hoping for the coming of the Messiah so that the fullness of light would be theirs again, because they had to kind of be with people in their darkness. And so that's why they sing so exultantly over Bethlehem and sing that it's not peace to the people of Israel, but it's peace to all people of goodwill. Um, that the Messiah has come not just for the people of Israel, but for them as well, for all those who have been waiting within the classical pagan dispensation. And so within that, the fathers and mothers of the church were very, very clear that everything that was good within the pagan traditions or within the non-Christian traditions, I'm using pagan in, in the classical sense now, mm -hmm. within the non-Christian traditions, everything that was good there was to be preserved as the work of the angels. And so... This is why within, for example, the Orthodox tradition, particularly also within the Roman tradition, but, but it's more explicit within the Orthodox tradition, the philosophers are sainted. So we speak of Saint Socrates and Saint Plato and, oh. and Saint Buddha because they achieved everything that they could as human beings without divine revelation. Again, fascinating. That's like, like yeah. never heard of that. That's amazing. No, no. And, and the unfortunate thing is that in the kind of far more what would you call it, I suppose, um, dichotomous understanding of later uh, Christianity, where it was anything in the Bible good, anything outside the Bible bad. Mm -hmm. There was um, a, a tremendous loss, which was the loss of the understanding that when a Christian comes before a non-Christian, the first duty is to reverence and respect all that is good there as the work of the angels. And so this is an extremely important duty and it changes. It's like changing what we mean by dominus, you know? Yeah. It makes us fellow servants approaching truth together rather than one dominating the other. And so much pain would have been saved had that been the teaching that was continued, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Recently we did, uh, on the Flower Path, I, I did uh, St. Gemma Galgani. Yes, yeah, one of my favorites, yeah. She was given the gift of being able to see her guardian angel mm. and she talks about it at certain times wrapping its wings around her yeah and i don't know if this was speaking in metaphor or if no apparently with her the angel did show up with wings <laughs> and and and, uh, and we know from scripture as well that they sometimes do you know the, the angel who appears before isaiah in the temple 
and who purifies him with the, the coal, the seraphs that are seen. They have wings. And so I, I, it's not so much, I think, that they possess wings the way we possess arms, as in it's part and parcel of what we are as a human being, but that the image is seen as being something that indicates the angelic. Right. So the question with regard to Gemma would be, she had the experience of the angel enfolding her in, in, in its wings. But was she receiving an intellectual vision whereby the angel was using her imaginary experience of what it is to be an angel That's what to I was indicate at. its closeness? Or was the angel actually appearing in an extant apparition? And that I can't answer. I, I don't know. But when the angels appear to us intellectually, and it's very clearly said by the early fathers and mothers, um, I'm, I'm afraid... I have to announce to, to Mr. Um, Greg Bishop, isn't it, that the, the co-creation hypothesis mm -hmm. is one that the early Greek fathers made in about the year 200 or so. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which was the idea that anything that is in our mind or in the store of the imagination may be used by the spiritual powers in order to make communication to us, particularly of the higher spheres, who, if they appeared in front of us in their full angelic nature, would actually kill us because we wouldn't be able for it. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. If it was the angel skinning itself in the way that yeah. it expected to be seen, in, in a sense. Yeah, and we also have that wonderful theory as well, that the higher angels will sometimes inhabit or come through the lower angels so as to make it easier for us to apprehend them or to be part of them. Mm -hmm. Padre Pio was, again, another saint who was extremely close to his angel. He had continuous sight of his angel from the time he was about five. Uh, and in fact, it was only when he was in secondary school that he discovered that nobody else saw their angel the way he saw his angel. It was so normative to him as, as a child. He just presumed everybody had this, this experience. And his angel used to uh, uh, bring him messages and would translate letters for him. His spiritual director to test him numerous times sent him letters in Hebrew, in Greek, in Chaldean, in French, in German, all languages that he had no knowledge of at all. And he would reply in flawless Hebrew, Greek, etc. Oh, uh, wow. Because the angel had dictated, had translated the letter and had dictated what he was to say. Uh, and it guided his hand in the script, etc. So, uh, as I said, the, the angels are, are there to assist us. And later in life, when he became extremely famous um, and people were sending thousands and thousands of letters a day, he used to say to people, you don't need to send a letter, just send your angel. Ask your angel to come and speak to my guardian angel. And so one of the graces or, or one of the teachings that is very often, particularly within the Franciscan tradition, but many of the saints have used it, is if I know I'm about to face a difficult meeting with somebody, for example, I will ask my angel to intercede with their angel ahead of time so that there is clarity of understanding or a more peaceful way of doing things or that their emotional capacity is more open to receive what I have to say, for example. And that's a very important teaching that we can speak to each other through our angels in that way. What are our guardian angels doing on the day to day? <laughs> mm -hmm. I, well, you'd have to ask them that, I think. But I suppose more than anything else, there is seen as the, so our free will is absolutely sacrosanct. The mm -hmm. angel cannot influence our free will and neither can a demon, by the way. The free will is absolutely sacrosanct. Not even God transgresses against our free will in terms of our choice. But what the angel can do is influence at the level of intellect and sense. So, for example, I receive an inspiration to, I suddenly think of somebody that I think, you know, 
maybe I should go and visit them or maybe I should see how they are or maybe I should help out more or maybe I should, you know, do my chores now as opposed to later or whatever. Those are inspirations that can arise from ourselves spontaneously, but they can also be assisted in their arrival by the angel. And the quieter we become, the more prayerful we become, the more meditative we become, especially the more attuned to the inspiration of the angel we will be to the point where it becomes far easier to move according to the good inspiration rather than to the negative inspiration. The angel's job is also to make sure that primarily the angel's job is to make sure that we attain our our fullness, that we attain our our unity with the divine ourselves. And so until, uh, from from conception until the moment we are united with the divine for eternity, the angel's job is to, to try and make sure that even the negative things that happen in our life become wisdom lessons for us so as to move closer to the divine. And the angel is constantly praying for us as well. I have, in retrospect, looking back on the situation, and people have heard me talk about the raccoon attack, etc. Mm. And you'll notice my, when I originally talked about it, I, said, I don't know how I did it. Like yeah. I had one shot, it was coming, you know, I had to stop it. it was, if it got by me, it was going to get to my son. And I said, you know, I'm not a martial artist. I didn't, <laughs> I don't have any particular training in that. I've honestly like kind of started to look at it. It's like, I wonder if my hand was being guided mm. now, you know, if, if there really was some sort of protective element going on there. Quite possibly. I mean, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, we will only discover when we get there sure. um, how often the angel worked. There's again, going back to Don Bosco, there's that wonderful story of, um, you know, he trained as a circus performer before becoming a priest. And um, he used to walk the high wire and he would do that even still as a priest to attract crowds to then preach to. So he would juggle and he would do gymnastics and then he would walk the high wire. And he was talking to one of his priest friends at one stage, much later in life and saying, you know, how wonderful it was that he was able to do all of this. And, you know, he couldn't believe that he was still as skilled and as good after all these years doing these things. And he's supposed to have stopped dead and paused. And it looked like he was listening to the air and a kind of a troubled look came over his face. And his priest friend said to him, what do you, what's happened? And he said, oh, my guardian angel just tipped me on the shoulder and said, do you know how many times I've had to hold you up up there? (laughs) Um, So, so again, it'll only be when we get to the other side that we we actually know how much we have been cared for. Uh, There's an old Irish thing as well. And it's funny, I thought it was only Irish. And then I came across it in the writings of Paolo Coelho, which is if we suddenly find we're being delayed getting somewhere. So you're ready to run out the door and suddenly you remember, you know, you forgot something, you go back in to do it. And then you're about to go and you realize, I don't know where my keys are. And like in that moment, not to get angry, but to stop and to pray, because your angel is preventing you from going somewhere or from getting to some point where there might have been an accident or a problem ahead of time. How many wonderful stories have we heard just in passing of people? Well, like, you know, if I didn't stop. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those moments. Now, of course, the corollary and what you get thrown back at you is, well, what about all the poor people who do go through these sure. experiences? And, and the answer is we simply don't know. Right. Um, we, we, we don't know what's necessary for ourselves very often. And so one of the problems with the fall in the Christian understanding of it, the fall darkened the intellect and the spiritual power of seeing, in other words, the imagination. And so as a result, we are subject to our imagination very often rather than objective users of it. And if we were objective users of it, that inner faculty of sight would be open that we would actually be able to see the angelic world normally, most of the time. 
And because we can't, we only see it out of the, the corner of our eyes. It's also believed, by the way, it's, it's a, a pious tradition, Christian tradition, that children up to the age of seven have full sight of the angelic world. And uh, very often the kind of, you know, everybody from invisible friends to the way um, children up to about five, six, seven will kind of talk to the air from time to time that they are speaking to the angels or seeing the angels. So this ties into our previous talks on uh, Marian apparitions and why mm. children are so often chosen. Yeah, they're clearer. Their sight is clearer. There's a wonderful passage actually about that sight and the kind of co-creation. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his, what's known as the Cosmic Trilogy, his kind of attempt at science fiction uh, in the second book, Perilandra, speaks of the moment an angel is actually seen. And he puts into fiction uh, in a paragraph or two what it's like to see an angel manifest. And even though it's fiction, I think it is one of the best descriptions of what it is as an angel makes itself known through the various levels. So I'm just going to read the paragraph if you'd like to hear oh, it. Please. It's, it's worth hearing. So Ransom, the hero of the, of the story, is speaking to the angels. Now, at this stage, he's only seeing them as kind of wavering mists in the air or kind of that sort of heat mirage. And they're speaking to him from that. And then they begin to manifest. So he says, the very faint light, the almost imperceptible alterations in the visual field, which betokens an angel, vanished suddenly. The rosy peaks and the calm pool vanished also, and then a tornado of sheer monstrosity seemed to be pouring over him. Darting pillars filled with eyes, lightning pulsations of flame, talons and beaks and billowy masses of what suggested snow volleyed through cubes and heptagons into an infinite black void. Stop it, stop it, he begged. So there we go. That's what happens when, <laughs> when an angel decides to reveal itself in all its glory. And for those who might like the more Tolkienian form of, of speaking of angels, uh, one of the things that's often forgotten, especially with the more modern in interpretations of Tolkien, is that the elves in Tolkien are angelic powers. They are bodied, embodied angels, as are the wizards, the Astari, and that's why there are seven of them in the Tolkien kind of theophany. So uh, if you want archangels, look to Gandalf and Radagast, etc. And if you want angels, look to elves. Tolkien is... A, a, just a gift that keeps on giving, I find. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have formally begun his process of canonization now. Really? Yes, yeah, it was begun by the Birmingham Diocese this year, and so he will, please God, be brought forward for canonization, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So you might be doing a flowered path on him at some point in the future, you never know. Fantastic. Well, one last thing before we go. Sure. Um, there's this, you know, cartoon image of people going up to heaven and they get wings and a harp <laughs> and a halo and uh, they become an angel. Yeah. This is not what happens. No, we will not be angeled. It's like saying a cat becomes a dog. We are fellow creatures, but separate species. And, and from that point of view, humanity will assume its fullest humanity in, in its union with the divine, just as the angels will assume their fullness uh, in that sense. So we don't actually have transformation into, even though we might have people like Enoch and even St. Francis is, is said to have assumed an angelic throne. It is the Franciscan tradition that the throne that Lucifer lost is a throne that St. Francis received, that what Lucifer lost by pride, St. Francis received by his humility. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we Franciscans think so. Uh, <laughs> but again, it's tradition. But even though we, we might assume the place or be given the duty or the message to act in an angelic manner, we do not become angels. The angels are separate to us in that sense. All right. I think we could probably continue talking about various oh, angel <laughs> accounts here and there, but let's wrap it up in a bow. There you go for Christmas. Okie doke. There you go. Thank you very much, Brother Richard. You're most welcome. Merry Christmas.
Merry Christmas to you and to all those listening. I hope it's a blessed one. I want to thank North, it's one of our patrons, for sending pretty neat little puck wedgie. Not an actual puck wedgie. Yeah, I was going to say, because you need overnight shipping and air holes and stuff. Yeah. It's like when you go to the post office and someone's picking up chicks and you can hear them in the background. Exactly. This would be scratching in the box. Maybe that doesn't happen to people who don't live in rural areas where you go to the post office and you hear oh, chickens you hear being chickens. Oh, yeah, waiting maybe to not. be picked up. But we got a nice little stuffed animal puck wedgie. It's very, very sweet. Thank you. And I want to thank Paula S. for sending a really neat book called Along the Potomac River, Extracts from the Maryland Gazette from 1728 to 1799. It's all old newspaper articles. You know I love that. Yeah. So thank you so much. Those are wonderful gifts. Thank you. Speaking of gifts, as it is the Christmas season, in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com, you'll find a link to the work that Brother Richard's Order does with the homeless. There's a link for the American and the Irish missions. It'd be a nice time of year to donate to that. If you like Brother Richard's work on Strange Familiars, be a nice time to, to reach out and uh, we can kind of pay back that way. Also, Maynard, one of our patrons, he's still struggling with his medical bills. I'll put the link for GoFundMe up there as well. Curiosity of the Week, Allison. I'm not even going to try it. Is it, is is it, it German? Is it, I think it's just Deutsch. I think that's the uh, double S. Oh, okay. So I think it's, I think we're going to mess it up. Okay. <laughs> I think it's Deutscher Almanac. It's an almanac. It's a German almanac from 1876. It's published in Lowell, Massachusetts. You're allowed to have Germans there. I was thinking it would be uh, Pennsylvania Dutch. That's right. That's Lowell, Massachusetts, right? At the very bottom there. Yeah, it's, I think it's, is it Ayers? Like, is it the same Ayers as makes like the Victorian like pectorals and the, um, Probably. The um, medical stuff. Probably. Yes, because here it says something chemeter, so I imagine that's like... Oh, I'm like a pharmacist. Yeah, so I think this is from the heirs. Oh, that is a cool illustration. <laughs> yes, it has I haven't really seen this before, and then Tim will hand it to me and be like, we can't get rid of this. Uh, you gave it to me to put in the pile <laughs> for things to sell for Curiosity of the Week. So. Well, I did, did I look through it? This, this seems like an episode of Hoarders. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do something with that. I was going to. I was going to. Wow, here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sell this because it's really cool, and it has really neat uh, early yeah, it's illustrations. Re- There's like snakes and eyes and chemicals and... Really cool. Ang- but there's a cool angel in the front of it. Oh, it even, I didn't even realize that. It's totally appropriate to tonight's episode. You like a good theme. I do like a theme. I did not even realize that. Look at me. Yes, there's an angel on the front. So that's why we chose it for, <laughs> for the Curiosity of the Week this week. It's a really cool almanac. If you read German, I guess that's a bonus. It's 1876, full of cool illustrations, like Allison said. Where else can you get things that are 150 years old? Yeah. Paper, it's the way to go. All of these old almanacs are cool. I love these old booklets like this. I'll put an image of this in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. You can click on that. It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other curiosities of the week. Also over at Etsy, artwork, originals, and prints. Be a good time of year to pick up a print of Hans Trapp, the Christmas wild man we featured on the show last year. My books are there. Through the new year, if you order one of my books, I'll do a little 
remark sketch in it. I've been doing quite a few of them. They're so much fun to do, actually. I, I like doing those little remark sketches. So little incentive to pick up one of my books before New Year. doesn't matter which book you choose. I'll go ahead and put a remark sketch in it. We also have Strange Familiars t-shirts, Glow in the Dark, and Classic Blue Awoken Tree designs, photos, Strange Familiars patches and stickers, and more. Go ahead to our Etsy shop and check it out. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. I also added the Flower Path mugs there for that other podcast. There's only, I think, three of them left. I had them made up for orchid-tier patrons of the Flowered Path. I think there's only three extras, so run, don't walk if you want a Flowered Path mug. While you're on Etsy, check out our friends at Karmic Garden, and Chad's shop is Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates it. Happy holidays, whatever holiday you celebrate. There is a lot more Brother Richard. We recorded a Q&A after we recorded the Angels episode. If I can get it edited, that'll drop next week. I plan to release an episode between Christmas and New Year's, but it's going to be if I can get it edited. But there's a Christmas special with Monster Fuzz we did as well. It's not like Circus of the Stars, but it's pretty close. Allison actually stepped on with Monster Fuzz, the first woman to ever appear on Monster Fuzz. The rare feminine cryptid. (laughs) Breaking the glass ceiling of podcasts everywhere. (laughs) We did mention that there are actually other women there are, just not on, not on Monster Fuzz. Not on Monster Fuzz. It's, it's been... And they had to import someone from America. You smashed the Monster Fuzz glass ceiling. <laughs> Look at you. All right. I hope everyone has a great holiday, no matter which winter holiday you celebrate. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We're on Instagram at strangefamiliars, and you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
Savior's to be born in a manger, yet a king was he. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details